I'm Jay Hughes, producer of Change Surfer Radio, and for the next half hour, I'll be your guide to a sexy high-tech vision of a radically democratic future. Brought to you by the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Welcome to Change Surfer Radio. Speaking today with Eric Kelzer, a graduate student at Cornell University in psychology, who's published a very interesting article on some research that they are doing there on moral cognition called Dirty Liberals, Reminders of Physical Cleanliness Influence Moral and Political Attitudes. That's coming out in Psychological Science. Eric, welcome yes. to the show. Thank you very much. It's nice to talk to you. Uh, so I've been very interested in this topic of moral cognition and our growing understanding of its neurological, uh, neurobiological bases. Why don't we start with you telling us about this, the two studies that you did, and then we'll get into sure. some of the implications. Sure. Well, the research was motivated by um, some past work, uh, work that sort of, you know, moral psychology took a big turn probably at the beginning of the 2000s, when people started to become interested in the idea that morality and moral decision-making may be uh, sort of more of an intuitive process than, than we used to think, and that, you know, we came out of a tradition where Lawrence Kohlberg told us that morality was something based, you know, a, a reasoned process where we advanced through stages of more and more advanced reasoning. And so uh, in the last 10 years, people have been looking at some of the more uh, uh, sort of subtle, intuitive influences on moral judgment. And so uh, some of the work that's been done has been, has been done showing that um, uh, subtle feelings or incidental feelings of disgust when you're in the process of making a moral evaluation influence that moral evaluation. So if you're made to uh, feel, you know, assess a number of moral behaviors in a room that, that smells a little bad or uh, just after you've seen some pictures, unrelated pictures uh, of disgusting images, that tends to make your moral judgments more harsh. Um, and uh, we were interested in the idea that purity and cleanliness as, as sort of the other side of disgust um, might have uh, uh, a similar kind of influence on moral judgment. So what we did uh, in the first study uh, was uh, we wanted to just see if subtle reminders of cleanliness would affect. Um, let me go out of order. In the second study, what we wanted to do is, is see whether uh, subtle reminders of cleanliness would affect uh, two things. First of all, um, people's moral evaluations, and secondly, um, their, their broader sort of political attitudes. The idea being that um, disgust has been linked in past work to conservatism. Conservatives appear to be uh, more disgusted by everyday things. Um, and, uh, you know, both disgust and conservatism have been linked to moral judgments, particularly moral judgments about sort of questionable or controversial sexual uh, things. So, so everyday things that, that are topics of everyday debate, like, you know, abortion uh, and uh, gay rights and gay sex, uh, to everything from that to... Um, you know, these things that we study in, in moral psychology about people's evaluations of, of acts of incense or taboo sort of sexual things. So what we did uh, in, the, in the second study, and then, I'll, and then I'll go to the first one, is uh, we put up a sign in the lab just reminding the experimenters, ostensibly, um, 
that we wanted to keep the lab clean, so could they please just use a hand wipe when they uh, go to use the computers? And uh, the experimenter stood in front of that sign and uh, administered a demographic information questionnaire to the participants. Um, Half the participants, of course, saw the sign. The other half, there was no sign uh, on the wall. It was just a blank wall. Um, What we found is that participants who uh, just saw the sign incidentally over the shoulder of the experimenter uh, were more likely to report uh, conservative uh, political orientation than were participants in the control condition. And then when they went on to do the uh, moral judgment task, we found that uh, those participants in the experimental condition judged sexual, uh, acts of sexual morality more harshly uh, than did control participants. But there was no difference between conditions on other uh, moral judgments that don't sort of directly relate to this kind of bodily purity. So we found that that the subtle reminder of cleanliness uh, uh, influenced political judgments, and that then, I guess I didn't mention, those in the experimental condition, after they filled out the demographic information questionnaire, we, uh, we reinforced the manipulation by having them wash their hands before they um, uh, did the computer moral judgments. And so those subjects then, after being more conservative, then reported uh, harsher moral judgments. In the second study, or the first study, actually, uh, what we did was uh, we approached people in a hallway as they were coming into uh, the psychology building. Um, they weren't just psychology students. Um, there was a, a range of majors and actually a range of ages. It wasn't all students. Um, and what we did was we um, asked people if they'd be willing to take part in a, just a really quick demographic uh, survey about Cornell uh, uh, students and Cornell faculty, and they said, sure. And uh, when they did, we asked them if they could please go fill it out either A, over on the other side of the hallway in a blank uh, corner, in a corner with nothing, or B, uh, over by the hand sanitizing dispenser. This is one of those hand sanitizing dispensers that have become popular in public buildings ever since, you know, H1N1. Uh, And we, of course, varied what side of the hall the hand sanitizer was on and and we made sure that people in the hand sanitizing condition were aware of the hand sanitizer. They indicated they were, and that those in the control condition were not aware of it. Um, but the key finding was that filling out the demographic information in front of the hand sanitizing station uh, led participants to report more uh, conservative uh, attitudes than participants in the control condition. So that was that was the thrust of the two uh, two studies. So you mentioned that um, some psychological research has shown that um, some of our sorting out in terms of our politics may be driven by innate differences in the way that we respond to stimuli, whether we're disgusted by things or not. There are a lot of other kinds of um, psychological markers of um, like neatness and chaos, tolerance of ambiguity, that all that kind of research goes back for 50 years that mm-hmm. shows differences between liberals and conservatives. But then more recently, your research is in the line of uh, other studies that have shown that uh, people can be primed, whether they're conservative or liberal to begin with, they can be primed in a more conservative direction by being exposed to bad smells and having something sticky on their hands or just the attractiveness of the people that they're being asked about. It's all kinds of things that Mm -hmm. influence moral cognition. So Mm -hmm. 
uh, it's just it's you know it shows how um, profoundly flawed our <laughs> our moral process is. I think now you mentioned uh, Kohlberg. I mean, I understand why um, you know this sheds uh, a different kind of light, but I would separate this as moral sentiment. You know, the the way that uh, sentiment mm. plays into our moral judgments, and what uh, Kohlberg was talking about was then how we reason. Uh, on the basis of moral sentiment, you know, or, or irregardless of moral sentiment. So you don't necessarily see the two as, uh, as uh, you know, you don't see this kind of research as invalidating Kohlberg's um, ideas. Oh, no, certainly not. Um, but but I, think that, I think that what it suggests is that, um, you know, these, these incidental influences, you know, if we make a room smell bad or if we have you stand in front or wash your hands before you do it, a moral evaluation. These incidental influences, uh, you know, I, I would see it as, as a biasing process. They bias sort of the initial judgment we we have uh, towards whatever the person or whatever the behavior is we're trying to judge, and and those biasing processes, uh, you know, can go on to to channel the kinds of reasoning processes that uh, we that we go through. So it, it can bias the examples we recruit. Uh, it can bias the uh, Way of thinking about the the uh, behavior. So there's a whole line of work, for example, on uh, what's be- become known as trolleyology. That uh, a number of people, including uh, you know my co-author on this paper, David Pizarro, have done uh, showing. And what trolleyology is is you present people with the famous uh, trolley problem. Uh, you imagine that there are you know anywhere from five to you name it uh, people on a on a trolley. That trolley's headed for certain peril if you don't do something in order to stop the trolley from going off the tracks and killing all five people, you have to in some way sacrifice an innocent bystander and so the question is what do you do and you know on the on the sort of philosophical Kohlbergian reasoning uh, way of of thinking about this problem, you can do one of two things: you can do the deontological thing, which is refuse to sacrifice the one person because killing anyone is wrong, or you can do the utilitarian thing by pushing or in some way sacrificing the one person uh, in order to save the five, benefiting the greater good. Uh, And what Pizarro has shown and what others have shown is that there are a number of sort of incidental influences that uh, affect our endorsement of the deontological or utilitarian uh, kind of reasoning. So um, so I guess this is a nice, that, 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 line of research is kind of a nice way of thinking about the way that sort of intuitive or incidental uh, influences or, or, or uh, forces can, can bias our initial evaluations, and that bias can, can lead us down um, towards a biased reasoning process down the line. So, so I think there's a nice interplay there between sort of the, the stuff that's coming out of moral psychology now and then the, uh, uh, the way that, uh, you know, uh, Kohlberg uh, described moral reasoning in the way that many philosophers describe moral reasoning. Now, uh, is there any evidence in the literature so far that um, liberals and conservatives or people who, with greater or lesser uh, disgust responses are more or less prone to being primed by these kinds of factors? Uh, so does a conservative become 10 times more conservative and a liberal only twice as conservative, mm. you know, with a bad smell or something like that? That's, that's a great question. Um, uh, what the correlation between liberalism or conservatism and uh, disgust is, you know, more specifically a correlation between conservatism and um, 
disgust sensitivity. Disgust sensitivity is an individual difference measure, which is sort of your sensitivity to disgusting things. So how much does it bother you? So it asks questions like, uh, 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 you know, how much does it bother you to um, use a public stall, right, without one of those sanitary uh, uh, tissue things, right? So it's, it's, it's sort of your your gut-level reaction towards these potential sources of disgust in your environment. Now, what that mean, now, now, it's a little unclear what that means. Does that mean um, that, that everybody responds, you know, that, that everybody sort of agrees on, the, on what things are disgusting and people high in disgust sensitivity just experience that disgust more acutely? Or does it mean that disgust sensitivity sort of sets you up to see certain things as disgusting if you're high in disgust sensitivity, whereas people low in disgust sensitivity wouldn't even find it wouldn't even you know sort of um, uh, find their way onto their radar. So uh, it's a great question, and we don't know. Um, it may be, and it may be both. It may be that conservatives a um, have a disgust response to things uh, that liberals don't, assuming that they're also uh, disgust uh, sensitive. And B, once they have that initial reaction, they may, it may sort of perseverate longer. So um, uh, we don't know. But uh, work from John Haidt and his colleagues and, and other people, Paul Rosen, have, have tried to uh, look at sort of this core disgust uh, uh, and tease that apart a little bit more. Yeah, you're right. Uh, John Haidt, rather, um, his work has been fascinating on this and um, very much suggests that we inherit a number of moral sentiments, um, one of which is this purity uh, sanctity dimension of, of our moral sentiment, and then there's respect for authority and in-group, out-group biases, well, which you mentioned, you know, if you do trolley experiments and you ask people about saving their own group down the line versus pushing somebody else of a different group on the, on the line, then, you know, you get different moral judgments. Yep. Uh, and then fairness and, uh, and harm of others and those kinds of things. Now, John has... Uh, drawn a conclusion, or rather rhetorical, has been trying to make a rhetorical point on the basis of his research, that liberals and conservatives are speaking different moral languages uh, because liberals uh, are simply responsive to the um, harm and egalitarian dimensions of, of moral sentiment, and the conservatives have these other dimensions as well. Mm-hmm. And he tries to argue that that we liberals, or uh, I'll speak for myself, that the liberal like such as myself um, should be more sen- sensitive to the poor conservatives who have these other moral sentiments. Mm-hmm. It, from my point of view, you know, the, uh, the, the point of the Enlightenment, uh, of Enlightenment thought, is to say, yeah, you may have monkey brain responses that say that, you know, poo is bad and therefore homosexuals should not be allowed to marry. And the whole point of our moral reasoning, of a Kohlbergian moral reasoning, is to overcome uh, nonsense sentiments like that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but, um, you know, what do you think about this notion that we all have to um, learn to respect one another's innate moral sentiments? Well, I mean, it's, it, I guess the way I think about the height work is um, that if you want to understand why conservatives and liberals may arrive at such impasses in their arguments and policy decisions, etc., it's important to understand that there are certain dimensions of morality, if you're a liberal, uh, that conservatives uh, respond to in an intuitive way. They have an intuitive kind of response to violations of certain uh, moral sentiments 
that liberals may not. So that, so certain issues may sort of set them off that liberals uh, don't necessarily even uh, construe as as necessarily moral issues. Um, and so you know, I, I see it as a I see it as a uh, navigational tool for understanding that. Now, whether you want to make the the leap to the prescriptive sort of uh, analysis, which is that um, it's it's on the it's the burden of liberals to try to, in some sense, um, uh, appreciate that and, and um, uh, adjust their own sort of assessment of conservative policies in that regard. I don't know, um, um, but I do see I do see that that, that the height work as a way of understanding why, um, you know. For uh, liberals, we may say, why is uh, why is gay marriage even a political issue? Why is it something that would even uh, uh, alert sort of moral sentiments? And I think the height analysis of that is at least a step in the right direction of uh, of understanding uh, why uh, uh, conservatives may not see it as or may see it as a very very strong moral issue. Yeah, some of the critiques of Haidt's work have been that if you look at liberals and progressives, they are disgusted by some things. They just aren't the same things as the conservatives are disgusted by. I mean, I, I think of the dueling banjos and the movie Deliverance. It's like you you hum a couple tunes you know, to any right. progressive, and they immediately <laughs> have a d- disgust response, and it's a it's an entirely different direction than yep. the one a conservative would have. And we may have uh, respect for authority, but it's the authority of science and reason instead of the authority of the Bible and faith. And so, you know, there's... Yeah, and similarly, you know, the in-group, uh, 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 loyalty to in-group, I think, I think there, uh, it's not that liberals don't have a loyalty to an in-group. It may be just that uh, the in-group is defined differently, where it may not be cultural, it may not be uh, political, or it may not be uh, at the country level, but it may be defined in a different way. And I think that way of thinking is is a really fruitful way of, of progressing. Um, that um, uh, it, it's probably the case, and I don't think John Haidt would disagree. It's probably the case that that uh, liberals have their own sort of uh, um, domains or dimensions on which these intuitions that don't normally seem to show themselves in moral decision making would have an impact, and it, it may just be that um, uh, we haven't clearly defined what those are. Now, uh, there's a strong debate also about how much we can interpolate backwards to the evolutionary roots of moral cognition, and mm-hmm. you know that um, instead of just doing the usual just-so story about, therefore, this must have been because we weren't supposed to push the other monkey out of the tree kind of thing, um, what do you think about the growing evidence of the neurophysiology and then the ethological comparisons to uh, chimpanzee, great ape, uh, moral behavior and cognition and political alliances and whatnot? Do, do you think that there's a growing body of work which supports the case that this is, in fact, a, a, an inherited aspect of, uh, of human psychology? You know, uh, it's, it's, it's a very tricky question knowing uh, when you see a conserved trait, including a moral trait, uh, whether that trait is conserved in the genes, which is the typical way of sort of thinking about evolutionary uh, psychology and evolution generally, or conserved at the level of culture, at the level of behavior. Um, so even even something like, I mean, I think in, in recapping uh, 
the introduction to the studies, you said that uh, you made reference to an innate kind of response to disgusting things, and I guess I, it's 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 not necessarily clear to me that that we have to call something innate. I guess as a my personal bias is 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 that that we should assume that things are conserved in other ways, and and then we we need really strong evidence that that um, that this is something sort of written into our genes because. You know, there are a lot of good reasons to suspect that a lot of this stuff remains plastic, and then we allow culture to sort of shape up what we need to respond to. So um, at the level of what's conserved at a genetic level, which I think is, is what you're asking about, um, I, I would guess that, it, that, it, that maybe some low-level mechanisms concerned that, that may not even be concerned necessarily, uh, may not be sort of um, necessarily moral. So, so take a concern, for example, for fairness. Um, now, certainly fairness is, is something we're concerned with in morality, but it's also something, um, it's just a useful thing to be able to account for uh, the resources that I have and the resources that those around me have. And you could imagine that if something like that is conserved, like a, uh, a concern for sort of allocation of resources, that that could then take on a moral tone when put in a in a context uh, uh, where a moral code is in place, so um, uh, I, I I think the evolutionary uh, psych stuff in the moral domain is interesting. I just I'm always hesitant, and and I like the work. I'm just always hesitant to come down too closely or too hard on the side of oh, all this stuff is conserved in in, in the genes because you know in some sense that can and I'll say can end the the sort of inquiry uh, into you know, both what shapes these intuitions and then sort of what, what sort of tunes them up to respond to culturally specific issues. Now, my last question is about cognitive bias. And I mean, it's not a terribly uh, revolutionary insight to say that when people characterize their opponents or outgroups as being filthy, that, uh, that you're going to have a different uh, political moral response. <laughs> but uh, it does, I think this growing body of research does um, point up how uh, subject we all are to uh, this kind of priming and uh, gives us reason to be more self-interrogative about how, you know, seeing a picture of a particular kind of person in a particular situation, whether they're dirty or not, um, might influence our moral judgment. So, I, you know, you uh, have a reflection in your paper about the um, the ubiquity of uh, hand cleansing stations and how that might have, you know, if you, if, you, if there was a, a bottle of Purell next to every ballot box, it, we might have more Republicans elected, you know, that we just need to be a lot more sensitive to the ways that these kinds of things happen. Do you have other reflections about the kind of prescriptive um, ways in which we could uh, avoid these cognitive biases? Mm. I mean, this is, yeah, this is a, this is a question that that is relevant not only in in sort of moral psychology but across the board and in some ways the work of social psychology for a long time and and you could argue since its inception has been to show that our behavior is shaped by a lot more than sort of the the stuff that we can reflect on in consciousness that there are a number of situational influences on behavior there's a lot of non-conscious influences on behavior there's a lot of uh stuff that just sort of that, that 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 is strongly in control that we may have no uh, awareness of, and um, 
Uh, and what we may have is, is awareness of sort of the, the, the biased products that, that result from these processes, but we don't know necessarily what led to it. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose um, the, imp- the important thing, given that we're sort of in, this is sort of the human condition, that we're, that we're sort of only aware of the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what goes into behavior, the uh, dialectical thought, whether you think about it uh, in terms of, of a scientific method, whether you think about it in terms of uh, 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 a dialogic environment, or whether you think about it even in terms of your own head, questioning the, the assumptions that you have, questioning the products of your thinking is a good thing. And um, there's, some, there's some evidence in the decision-making literature that just asking people to consider the opposite view, um, that process uh, can lead them to final assessments that are relatively more unbiased than they, than they would have been otherwise. And so, uh, you know, there are a number of specific uh, interventions that people have proposed, but I guess if I had to, if I had to, to throw in my hat for uh, uh, a general one, it's, it's uh, you know, you've probably seen this bumper sticker, don't believe everything you think, and I, I think there's some truth to that. Um, that to the extent that we can take our intuitive or quick assessments about the world and subject them to something dialectic, to something that, that, that sort of says, hold on a minute, let me think about the opposite side of this, uh, we'd probably be in better shape. Well, I wish I, as a graduate student, had done as re- research as clever as this and uh, written as great a paper as this and published oh, thank it. thank you. <laughs> so congratulations on this, and I look forward to more research from you and your team there. Thank uh, but, you so much. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you as well. And this has been uh, Eric Helzer. He's a graduate student at uh, Cornell University's Department of Psychology. And the paper we've been talking about is Dirty Liberals, Reminders of Physical Cleanliness Influence More Moral and political attitudes coming out in psychological science and available um, with much commentary online because people found it quite fascinating. So thanks again. We'll have you back when you publish your next one. Thank you very much. Okay. You've been listening to Change Surfer Radio, a sexy high-tech vision of a radically democratic future, brought to you by the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and produced at WRTC Hartford at Trinity College and WHUS Stores at the University of Connecticut. I'm the host and producer of Change Surfer Radio and the executive director of the IEET, Jay Hughes. If you want to learn more about the techno-progressive perspective of Change Surfer Radio and the IET, or you want to share your thoughts about our programs, email us at director at IEET.org. Also at IEET.org, you can subscribe to a weekly podcast of Change Surfer Radio and listen to or download all of our shows since 1998, thanks to archive.org and the AIMFOS Radio Project. Our intro and outro music were composed and recorded by IEET fellow Ricardo Campa. So educate, agitate, and organize. And I hope to meet you in a sexy, high-tech, and radically democratic future.